spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Last week it was crows, this week it's bats. It's episode 351 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and I had such a great time talking about Batwoman last week with Megan Tandy. I thought, hey, now that season two's finally kicked off, let's get the bat herself on this week. I got a chance to participate in a press conference with Javicia Leslie, the brand new Batwoman, Ryan Wilder. So she's going to talk about the Ryan Wilder character and, and her training for her for her stunts and a whole bunch of different stuff. I can't wait for you to hear her dive in to season two this week. And yes, guess what? We're finally going to talk about WandaVision. The first couple of episodes, going to be plenty of spoilers on that. Going to talk about Batman Solve the Dragon, so it's a double review week. You know there's going to be comics. There's more DC news and nerd news coming up. There's so much to talk about. But when is that not the case? Really, right? But up next... Let's get into WandaVision episodes one and two, full of spoilers, because I know you've seen them by now. Let's get to it next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey guys, this is Chloe Bennett from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. There's something new in the neighborhood of the MCU, and it is the first ever Marvel Studios TV series on Disney+. Plus. That's right, WandaVision is finally here, and yeah, gonna talk spoilers this week for episodes one and and two, you've had a week. I know episode three is out right now, but the podcast gets recorded before that. So I can't talk about episode three, but I will tease ahead a little bit at what I think is going to happen. But I will say this, and this is going to be a spoiler-filled review, but I don't think I'm going to actually drop a ton of spoilers if you haven't seen the episodes already. But as I'm watching these first couple of episodes, what I thought to myself is this is classic sitcoms at its final, like the golden age of sitcoms. So this really was a in a love letter to that era of television. If you're if you're younger and you're not familiar with these shows, and I'll I'll admit some of these shows came out before my time. You know, Nick at Night when I was younger showed these types of series. So to me, I mean there was a there was a big love letter to those series and I thought they did a fantastic job at recreating what were those classic sitcoms? And maybe you dug that, maybe you didn't. I did because, you know, I used to watch those and I used to enjoy them as well. So, And it's funny because what they did was they mixed in who Wanda and Vision actually are and their powers and, and their abilities and things like that. And they brought it into this world. And I thought that that made a very interesting and, quite frankly, comedic mix because, you know, you're trying to hide that and their basic goal is to blend in and they you know, sort of feel miserably at that at times. And it's, and it's kind of funny. And I got to say that Paul Bettany really nails this. He really, really does. I mean, Elizabeth Olsen was really good too, but Paul Bettany was especially, especially good in these first couple of episodes. And a lot of the comedy actually came from him, which I was actually kind of expecting it to be the other way around. So I thought that that was a really, really neat way to go, and and I love the black and white. I wish it was like more traditional black and white, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna split hairs here. I still enjoy the fact that it was in black and white, and when it makes that transition to color at the end of the second episode, I thought that that was a really vivid moment there as well, and it acts as kind of like a page turner, too, right, to set up what's going to be episode three and beyond. So I thought that was really, really neat as well. I also got. Quite frankly, and I don't know if I'm the only one that felt this way, I got Truman Show vibes 
when I was watching this because clearly there's this undercurrent of something is happening to Wanda, right? Obviously, we know the deal of what happened with Vision in Infinity War, and we know, you know, where things stand. However, here he is, and for some reason, and you hear that, you know, that voice saying, Wanda, who's doing this to you? And we know we knew that coming into this, something was being done to her, and she was trapped inside of this world for whatever reason. And we get to kind of see that, you know, they pull back the curtain for us. It's almost like this is being produced for her benefit, sort of, right? And, and that is very, very apparent. And then I love how there's subtle little clues in each, just like, in, again, like in The Truman Show, if you watch that movie with Jim Carrey, there's subtle clues that what's happening around you is somehow not real. And you get that Wanda's picking up on this very, very slowly. She, of course, you know, at the very beginning, you start to d- dismiss the things that don't seem right. Right? I mean, I think that that's kind of a natural reaction. You think, ah, I'm overreacting. Or, ah, you know, it's probably nothing. Or, you know, that that's weird, but I'm not going to dwell on it. Well, if that stuff starts to happen even more often... Your radar gets up more and more and more. So even if you are trapped in a world by either magical means or whatever, you're going to realize that something isn't right at some point, especially for a powerful hero like Wanda Maximoff and the Scarlet Witch. And you know at some point she's going to figure this out. And it feels like whoever's doing this to her knows that she's going to figure it out too. And actually they, they are making their mistakes along the way. And, you know, there's been a ton of speculation as to who... This villain actually is that's doing this to Wanda. I mean, the the names that I've seen are are perfectly fine. I mean, they're all good choices, but you know who it's ultimately going to be. I'm not going to speculate on that because I'm just going to sit back and enjoy the the ride, quite frankly, because this is something that's very different from anything that Marvel Studios has ever done before. Because I, I, it's not just the fact that they're entering the TV realm; it's the fact that Tonally, this is completely 100% different than anything Marvel Studios has done before. And I know it's not going to stay that way. There's going to be an ultimate shift at some point. But the fact that they have this capability lets me know that they're not stuck in a certain formula. And going into Phase 4, I think that that is hugely important to show, hey, we can do and try some different things. And I've heard Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. fans, too, by the way, saying, well, you know, technically, weren't we the first Marvel Studios series? Not really, you weren't. You were just constrained by the by Marvel Studios. Every time you tried to tell your own story, they went, uh-uh-uh-uh, no, you don't. Remember, you're based in our universe, and we this is happening in our movies, so now you have to pay attention to this. Because every time it seemed like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was getting really good, something from a Marvel Studios movie would pull it back, and they'd have to focus on that, and they'd ditch the story that they were going on, which was really, really good. Now, that didn't happen every time, but it happened a lot. So, I wouldn't necessarily consider Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. a Marvel Studios series. This one is a completely 100% laser-focused. This is in the Marvel Studios cinematic universe. This is made by us, for us sort of thing. And it seems, even in the early going, obvious that this is going to connect to Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Of course, you know that Scarlet Witch is in that as well. So that's not a stretch, but at the same time, it seems like, you know, they're really setting the stage for that. And, and could could that have something to do with why Vision is in this, or is this a complete manifestation 
we don't know at this point, and again, it's too early to speculate. Just like the beekeeper, and I, I will say, the choice of a beekeeper was really weird. Like, you see a beekeeper climbing out of a manhole, and and you go, okay, that's weird, and then there's bees surrounding him or her. I mean, we can, you, don't, you can't really tell. It looks like a man, but you don't really know for sure. Surrounding this person... As they're coming out of a manhole, that's, you know, that's as bizarre as it gets right there. And and then you get, the, you know, the, the turn and the dark look and the mysteriousness sort of thing. So I thought that that was very well played and very well done. And again, we'll find out who the beekeeper is, I'm sure, at some point before the end of the series. But for right now, I think for what they did in making it this classic golden age of television type of homage, I thought that that was really, really neat. And it's easy to get lost in that kind of world to write that 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 you know illusion of perfection, if you will. So I think that if you're going to trap somebody in a world, that's a good place to start, sort of thing. So I like that they did that. I like the transition that they made at the end of episode two, where where everything becomes in color and it looks like she's pregnant now. And and again, these little subtle things where you're taking somebody's focus off what reality actually is, and you're giving them the world that they wanted that was taking away, taken away from them. And even somebody as powerful as Scarlet Witch is going to get lost in that world because that's where her heart ultimately is. So, again, this is a brilliant kind of, you see where this is sort of going and what this is going to do to Wanda at some point. We don't know who's doing it. We, we, I mean, I can only imagine why they're doing it is to take her off the board for whatever it is they're trying to do, right? You want her out of the way because she's extremely powerful. And if she wants to stop you, she's going to. So you take her out of the equation if you want to do some evil deeds, that's for sure. But I am all the way on board for WandaVision. I think it's funky. I think it's weird. I think it's cool. And I think that I feel like I'm, I, I know there's going to be more transitions as the episodes go on. And I can't wait to see where those are going to go. That's going to do it for my spoiler. I, I guess it turned into a spoiler-ish review of the first ep- couple episodes of WandaVision from Disney+. Plus. Up next, how about we get to my interview with Javicia Leslie, the new star of Batwoman, joins me next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Christine Adams from Black Lightning, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This past Sunday really was a new start and a new era for Batwoman Season 2 kicked off with Ryan Wilder and Javicia Leslie bringing this new Batwoman character to life. And right before the premiere, I actually got a chance to talk to Javicia about the role and about what we can expect coming up for Season 2. So I want to kick it off with the first couple of questions that I get to ask her, and then we'll move on to some other questions that were asked during the press conference as well that were really, really interesting. But first, here's my conversation early on with Javicia Leslie from the Batwoman Season 2 press conference. Javicia, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Very good. Thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So, obviously, we've seen all the character descriptions. We've seen the trailers and stuff like that. But I feel like I I need to hear it from you. (laughs) What was your first impression of Ryan Wilder once you first started digging in? She was very opposite of Gotham to me. She She was like... I felt like if I were living in Gotham and we were past the glitz and glam of what we see a lot of times when we're introduced to Gotham in movies and TV shows, we'd find her there. She's not the person that we see highlighted in a lot of these films and television shows. And so it's like we're finally seeing a different perspective of Gotham. You know, Gotham is a, is a, 
even though it's a city, it's a world. And I think it has a lot of different perspectives. And with Ryan, when I first read the character, I felt like this was a very unique and original perspective that we haven't seen with Gotham yet. And I know that you know that there was gonna be a lot of action when you took this role. There's there's a lot of baddies out there in Gotham. So you've been doing a lot of your own stunts as well, from what I understand. Do you feel like your Muay Thai background actually kind of helped you be able to dive into that a little bit more? Definitely. Um, you know, like I'm not, I'm not a pro martial artist, but I feel like it allows me to speak the language with our stunt coordinators when it's time to choreograph our fights because it's not foreign to me whatsoever. It's something that I'm very passionate about. And so we are able to kind of create moves that I can at least understand. And then we just build from the things that I do know. And I start to learn more things and we're able to like do more in a shot. Caroline was saying earlier, a lot of times if you're, if you're, actress doesn't have any type of training in martial arts you have to like shoot a hit and then cut and then mm -hmm. re-angle the camera to shoot another hit and then cut but because i do have some type of experience we're able to shoot a little bit more seamless especially when the camera's facing me so one of the other questions that was asked of Javicia Leslie in the batwoman press conference was did she feel any pressure bringing a brand new character into an existing show and into an existing mythos. No, I didn't find any pressure because it was a brand new character. So I felt like I could come in there without the pressure. I didn't have to try to uh, fill the shoes of my predecessor, especially because it wasn't like I was like it was a character being recast. It was a completely new original character. So my only job was to really create the world of Ryan to make sure that that was authentic and grounded. And with that, I felt confident in going to the season, knowing that we were coming from something that was like very authentic and very original. Another question someone asked Javisi that I thought was really interesting was about her possibly needing the suit and maybe even earning the suit and also asked her about Ryan being a black woman who's also part of the LGBTQ community. That is what I actually felt was more connected with Ryan than her predecessor was that you watch her go through the journey of, of needing the suit because she felt so powerless. And I think that that is so current with everything that we have going on in society right now, you know, feeling powerless. And all of us are trying to find our superhero suits to figure out how to make a difference, to figure out how to change, whether it's deciding to go into, you know, po you know, policy, like political and government, or whether it's just like choosing to be a teacher or choosing to be some type of hero in your community. We're all trying to find a way to find that superhero suit. And so Ryan really does go on that journey of, of like, I'm tired of this. Like, I'm tired of feeling like we don't have anyone to protect us. And then the people that are supposed to protect us are the ones that are treating us the worst. Right. sounds very familiar. <laughs> so moving into the inner, the, 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 moving into her being a black woman, her being um, a lesbian, all of it. Yeah. The, you know, that, that kind of goes back to what I said earlier about titles. Like I don't look at titles like that, but I understand the understand, I understand the representation of those titles. So to be able to play in that world, not only in my real life, but also on screen. I think that that's super powerful, super important. You know, a lot of times we, we, we realize like these characters aren't for everybody, but they're going to be for someone. And that's what's really important. It's like, instead of us always trying to maybe please the masses, which what is really the masses, what I love so much about this show, it's, it's very specific. And I think that that's something that, that it should be commended for, for being very specific and for being brave enough to be very specific. One of the next questions was so simple, and yet it was so profound at the same time, and that is, what does she hope, what does Javisi hope viewers get 
out of her portrayal of Ryan Wilder in Batwoman. You know what I love so much about Ryan? I feel like when I watch superhero shows, they're so opposite of me as a human being. And I'm really watching something that's very much like a fantasy. And that's cool because we're able to lose ourselves in it. But what I love about Ryan is she's like us. And then she enters that fantasy. So now you can have like, you can have like, there's a stake in it for you. There's something that you can invest in because you understand it, you relate to it, you connect to it. She's not some rich, wealthy socialite. She is literally like all of us. And she's now entering this world of fantasy. And it kind of like, it brings my child, like to me, and I feel like a lot of people will feel this when they watch it. It brings that childhood likeness to it. You know, you can really imagine yourself in that world through Ryan's journey. So I'm so glad that somebody asked Javicia Leslie this question. How cool was it to sit behind the wheel of the Batmobile? It's super fun. I think because I don't have anything to compare it to because it's the only, you know, mode of transportation I've used since being on the show other than the van that I live in. It's super dope. You know, those cars are so powerful just in in essence, like before you even drive, just you feel the energy of it. And the way that our, our team has really like, you know, designed it, 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 every part of it feels epic. You know, you, the screens and how you're able to like press this button and then a missile comes out or, or you press this button and you go faster or some other type of layer covers the car. Like that's what I watched when I was growing up, when I watched Batman, you know, I've, I've, that, that car has, it goes from a car to a motorcycle. Like that's what I saw when I was growing up. So to be able to be a part of that at all, is super fun and epic. And it's super cool that, you know, young kids are going to see this Batwoman in the Batmobile because I know we didn't get to play with it the first season. So if you saw the first episode of season two of Batwoman, you know how driven Ryan Wilder is. No doubt about that. Even maybe a little bit impulsive as somebody, the person that asked this question said. So the question is, how is that going to help or hurt Ryan coming up this season on Batwoman? When we went through the first few episodes and I would read the script and I would feel that drive, it kind of came natural because I really had spent a good amount of time in the world of Ryan's past before we started shooting because we had to go to quarantine. I also had to go to fittings and all these other things. So I had about, I had six to eight weeks to really kind of just sit in the world. So I understood why she had that drive. I understood what it meant for her because you're talking about my mom dies in birth. I get thrown into, okay, let's, let's also look at it like this. And this is, this is honesty, right? In our world, if a white baby's mother were to die in birth, that white baby would probably be quickly adopted. But that's not the same for a lot of other ethnicities, you know? And, and babies are adorable. I don't care what race they are. <laughs> like, you can't deny an adorable chubby cute baby. But in reality, there are so many Black children who are thrown into that foster system who don't get adopted because no one's, no one's adopting them. And so she gets thrown into the foster system. And I come from a family of foster care because my grandmother's sister, my Amy, was a foster parent. So I have cousins that are all like foster kids that are cousins to me because my, my Amy was a good foster parent. So she kept them around for a while. She was always consistently in their life, even if they had moved on to a different home or had moved on to adulthood. So with that, I've seen how it can be amazing for certain kids. But I know that there's the opposite of foster, foster parents who are in it for the check, who don't care about the kids whatsoever because my Amy would get kids that came from homes like that. So those were the homes that Ryan grew up in. People just not 
caring about her, people not fighting for her. And she finally meets someone that wants her, that wants to love her, that wants to take care of her like she should have been taking care of her entire life, that wants to be her mother. And they have this strong connection and they're together and she's happy. She's completely happy. And then that happens to her. You know what I mean? That's taken from her. The way it's taken from her is taken from her right in front of her own eyes. And she's a person that her, she, she's learned all these different martial arts so she can protect herself and her mother and people that she cares about. And she could do nothing. It's taken right from her and she could do nothing to save her mother. So I understand the drive. So I would read the script and I would innately and naturally attack that way because if you, if I've set in that world, in that history of, of feeling neglected, of, of my mom being murdered, of her murder going unsolved, that justice never prevails, I'm going to have that type of energy and that type of drive every single time I get a chance to avenge her death or save anyone. And so, yeah, throughout the, especially in the beginning part of the season, that's Ryan. Like, she's head first at everything. And I, I actually love that about her. I love how how messy that can come across because she has to find a way to, to hone it. She has to find a way to, to focus. But I think that that's what makes her so special because she's very authentic. She's very raw. She's very grounded in her beliefs. And really it's going to take Luke. It's going to take Mary to show her like there's a bigger picture. And sometimes that bigger picture will not involve getting justice for your mother. And so it's really this, that's the journey that she has to go on to be able to forgive or maybe she doesn't. So that's really how the season goes. And finally, if you saw the end of episode one, a little bit of a spoiler here, but something happens to Ryan at the end of episode one. So the question was, what can you tease about that certain something that might just be in Ryan's system and how it'll affect things going forward? 100% is going to affect Ryan's system, but you also have to remember she's a very strong and proud woman and her entire focus right now is to prove that she can be that woman. And so she's not going to admit the fact that she's going through something. And that's really going to be a huge issue because she needs help and she, she just won't admit it. She doesn't want to admit it because she doesn't want to feel like she's less than she doesn't, she's been compared to Kate Kane so much that she just wants to show that she's strong and she deserves to be able to, to to wear this suit and save the world, you know? Okay, I know I said finally, but let's do one more because let's talk about the dynamic between Ryan and Alice and you know why there's a dynamic and what the connection is between them. So how is that going to play out? And what's that going to be like going forward through the rest of the season? You know what's interesting about that dynamic is that I people do things and sometimes they don't know how much it can affect other people. They blindly do things. And I think that for a lot of Alice's life, she's just, she's done whatever she wanted to do. And there might've been one specific goal, but she didn't know how that goal impacted other people. And I think this season is going to make her face a lot of the things that she has done in her past that, because if you really think about it, think about what Alice has been to the series, right? And she does major things. She like has unleashed a lot of evil on Gotham. But no, the story never follows the person, the homeless person that was in the alley that got affected by something she did. So now she's being met with with the impact of her actions. So it's definitely going to be a very interesting relationship between the two. It's definitely going to be a huge part of this season in, in Ryan's journey, in Alice's journey. 
I don't know. I'm only halfway through the seasons. I, I only know what has happened so far and what has happened so far is a lot, but I don't know how it's going to develop. All I know is you should be watching Batwoman season two every Sunday night at eight o'clock Eastern time on the CW. And then once again on the CW app the next day. Once again, thanks to Javicia Leslie for joining me this week and the wonderful questions that were asked during the press conference. And thanks to the folks at the CW and Warner Brothers as well. Up next, going to keep the DC train rolling with a spoiler-free review of Batman Soul of the Dragon next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Julie Nathanson from Far Cry 5, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. It's time to get funky Elseworld style. That's right, Batman Soul of the Dragon is already here on digital, but coming out on Blu-ray and DVD this Tuesday on 4K Ultra. By the way, I don't want to forget that. And I just thought it would be a good time, you know, in between the digital release and the physical media release, to give a review of Batman Soul of the Dragon. And I'm going to do this spoiler-free, and I'll tell you why. Because I know, and of course the podcast is going to come out before this comes out on physical media. And I'm a physical media nerd. I'm going to buy the Blu-rays and the DVDs and the and the 4Ks. That's just what I do. I'm not an all-digital guy. So if you're like me and you don't want this spoiled for you before you buy it and watch it, I'm not going to do that to you. So hopefully anybody that's already seen it can appreciate that and know that I'm going to do this spoiler-free. Now, the, first of all, there was a, a lot of new members of this cast, and I think for this movie that really worked out well. I mean, there's certainly names that you'll recognize, like Michael Jai White playing Ben Turner, of course, Bronze Tiger, you know, Kelly Hu playing Lady Shiva. These are names that have been in, you know, DC animated movies before. But then you've got David... Guantoli, who plays Batman and Bruce Wayne in this movie. And then you've got Mark Dacascos, who played Richard Dragon and did a fantastic job, by the way. I, I think this was a really cool mix of a cast in this movie because what this movie really was to me was a great 1970s throwback. It was also a great martial arts action movie that was placed in that era. You know, the, the action was was definitely ramped up for movies that you would have gotten in that era. And certainly some of the, you know, it was very much more streamlined than you would have probably seen in that era. But it, there's such a love letter to that style of movie. And the soundtrack really sells it too. That's that's the other thing. It's not even just about the look. Because if you, if you see the look of the animation style, the animation style itself isn't retro. It's definitely something that you would have found in like a Batman the Animated Series or some past... DC animated movies that you've seen. But what we got was really just the way that the characters were designed and the settings were designed and things like that. It was just perfect. And and that is absolutely a tip of the cap to people like Sam Register and, and of course, Bruce Tim and Sam Liu, who directed this one. And again, Jeremy Adams, who did a great job writing the dialogue for this movie and really just making it get that 70s feel. It was about the music. It was about the dialogue and, and the direction that they were given. All brought this thing together to make this feel like an authentic 70s movie that just happened to have Batman in it. Because it's an Elseworld story. And again, this is something else. that this Maybe this is a controversial take. Maybe it isn't. If you've seen the movie, maybe you feel the same way. And, I don't, and when I say this, don't take it as a criticism. Follow me on this. This is not a Batman movie by any stretch. Is Batman in it? Yeah, he's in it. it, it does he play a huge part in the story? You could make that argument, I guess, 
to me, this is really a Richard Dragon movie. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you say Richard Dragon, Soul of the Dragon, you know, the thing's not probably going to fly off the shelves, right? And and you can understand that because a lot of, you know, non-hardcore DC fans don't know enough about Richard Dragon. And if you saw, you know, the character on Arrow, it was, you know, kind of done differently, obviously. But you wouldn't think that this would be the Richard Dragon that you're going to be getting. Now, here's the deal. It, that... The, the the way that this was a Richard Dragon movie was how this kind of plays out in the end. And you'll you'll understand that once you actually see the movie. So since I'm not spoiling it, I can't tell you why. But there's far more Richard Dragon in this movie than there is Batman. I can tell you that for sure. And that is not a bad thing because this Richard Dragon character has got like this James Bond smoothness to him, right? And and he but he's also got this, you know, this this funny way about him. Where there's, he's got some good humorous one-liners. He's got a, a, some good confidence. It's almost like a merging of a Bruce Lee and a James Bond in a certain way. It's a very, very interesting way that the character is portrayed. And again, very, very cool. And I'm not even mad about it. Because, you know, yeah, it's Batman, Soul of the Dragon. But, you know, Bruce wasn't even my main focus of the, of the, of, of the movie. And we get the, the flashbacks to Nanda Parbat in the training, and then you also get what's going on in the present. They tie that together nicely as well because then you understand the dynamic between these characters, and man, is Shiva fierce in this movie. Let me tell you. So Kelly Who, <laughs> hats off to her because Shiva is as ruthless as you would get of in that character. It, you know, she just happens to be playing for the good guys. In this particular sense, but you know, a wonderful job, and and I love the dynamic between Ben Turner and Bruce Wayne. Actually, in this movie, I think that that's really really cool. But how about let's talk about James Hong for a second, because O Sensei, I mean, he's wise and he's hilarious at the same time. There, there's a nice, there's a couple of big moments that that involve this character in this movie that I really cannot, I can't even tease it for you because it would totally spoil everything. But James Hong really just brings this character home. And he really does play the wise old sensei, but at the same time, I don't want to necessarily, you know, relate this to other senseis that you might have seen in past movies. But, you know, he's every, every, he's every much the mentor to this group, and he's what ties them together, ultimately. And you understand why they respect him as much as they do. And, and just from a performance standpoint, I think he does a fantastic job. Now, was the story a little clunky? Yeah, it was a little bit clunky. But at the same time, again, you kind of forget all that because of how much fun you're having with this movie. If, if you are looking for a retro-style kung fu-type movie, this is it. This does that job for sure. It just happens to add... It didn't even really add a superhero element to it, right? It's like a little bit spy movie. It's a lot of bit kung fu, kung fu movie. And it's a little bit comic book movie. It just pieces this, this thing together to be this... Just It's a fun ride. Let's just I'm just going to call it that. It is a fun ride. No doubt about it. Yes, there there's some baddies in there. There's some actually, I say, is the the villains in this movie, as far as who they have to to battle with, it's pretty impressive, 
and you say, okay, well, how are they going to deal with this? And then, you know, the action clicks in and you kind of just get lost in it, quite frankly. So I think action-wise, this is probably one of the more action-packed DC animated movies that I can remember in recent memory. Yes, there's plenty of dialogue, too, and there's, there's certainly some character building. But at the same time, there's a lot. When the action comes at you, it comes at you. And it is presented in such a crisp and clean way. The animators really did a fantastic job with that. But, I mean... I, was this the best DC animated movie ever? No, not by any stretch of the imagination. But it was one of the most fun. There's no doubt about that. This is one of those movies where you go, was it, it wasn't awesome, but I'm going to watch it again. Right? Because there were so many great action scenes in there. And it's one of those niche movies that, like, if you're just in the mood for that retro-style kung fu type movie, this is one of those movies that you're going to pick up. You will enjoy this. And you will probably watch it again even if you're not sure if you will. It's just one of those kind of movies that hits you and makes you want to watch it. When you're, you are you know, you might not watch it again right away, but it's one of those movies that's going to go, oh yeah, I remember that. Let's check that out again. I'm kind of in the mood for that. It's that kind of movie. And guess what? There's absolutely nothing wrong with that whatsoever. And it's nice to see a DC movie with Batman's name on it that isn't all about Batman for the sake of it being about Batman to get people to buy it. And and that is that is something that is is not an easy thing to do because, you know, Batman rules almost everything. But at the same time, it took a lot of guts to make this movie the way that they did, and I think they pulled it off brilliantly. That's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of Batman Soul of the Dragon. Up next, you want to talk about comics? Let's do it. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is copywriter Ollie Masters, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. If comics are a part of your past, present, or future, it doesn't matter. You're in the right place. Whatever you're reading on this week, it's time for what we're reading. And first up, yeah, going to go right back to DC Future State, and that is Nightwing. DC Future State Nightwing, number one, from DC Comics, and that is written by Andrew Constant. Nicholas Scott doing the art for this one. Wonderful, as always. Ivan Placencia on the colors there, Wes Abbott on the letters, and Yasmin Putri on the cover. Now, again, going to get into a few spoilers here since this book's been out for a little bit. And Dick Grayson is actually kind of taking the reins as the leader of this masked resistance against the magistrate. And yeah, you're going to need to know what's going on in DC Future State before you crack this one open because it, it, it does matter. Now, it's kind of an honor of Batman's, and I put this in quotes, death, because we know, you know, from last week what's really going on there. Now, Dick's clearly reached the end of his rope, and he's really ready to make a big statement in this, what what's, what is amounting to a war for Gotham. But then, you know, then again, when is Gotham not at war with something or someone, right? So he's not the only one, though. As we meet Peacekeeper 6, now we met Peacekeeper 1 last week in Dark Detective. Now, Peacekeeper 6 is Captain Marks, and I say Captain Marks almost literally because this is a very similar character to Deadshot, okay? Like, like with the eye and everything, just minus the mask. It's, it's very, there's a lot of Deadshot vibes here. Now, Nightwing is her, Nightwing's her operation, and Peacekeeper 1 demands victory. This is public enemy number one right now, is Dick Grayson. I mean, unless the, the events of Dark Detective number one have changed that. I'm not sure that's the case based on what I saw here. Now, this is a different Nightwing, though. This is a very different Dick Grayson, and he's definitely 
I don't want to say toughened up because he's always been tough, but there's a little bit of because he's lost his mentor, his attitude has sort of shifted, if that makes sense. Now, he does get an unlikely visitor, though, in his secret lair. And by the way, where he hides out, I won't spoil that if you haven't read it yet. It's like almost like a hiding in plain sight type of thing. At least at least I think it is, right? Not necessarily the last place you'd look, but it's kind of ironic that he ended up settling there. But it doesn't necessarily mean that this visitor is a welcome one either, by the way. The company, though, that he's keeping right now might actually be what he needs to survive given what happens at the end of this issue, even though it seems like that's how he planned it. And and again, I won't spoil what that is just in case, but I, it just it's a risky play. It's a very Batman-like thing to do. Let's just put it that way. I said this at the very beginning. Nicholas Scott is a treasure to the comic book world. I mean, her art is always amazing, and it gives you that sharper edge to Nightwing that this issue really needed. I mean, I'm sure it was fun for her, too, drawing Nightwing in a towel and a towel-clad Dick Grayson throwing kicks and punches. I'm sure Nicola enjoyed that quite a bit, as, as I'm sure some others did as well. Now, the story, to me, doesn't really pop as much as the art does. But, I mean, that, that, would, that would be saying a lot, right? There, there certainly is some, there's a vibe going here, and there's a setup being done that says, okay, here's your potential payoff for the next issue. That's actually been quite common in Future State and these second issues are really going to have to pay off for a lot of these books in order for DC Future State to be successful as a whole. So we can only see where that's going to go. A brand new Iron Fist story is upon us now. It's Iron Fist, Heart of the Dragon, number one from Marvel Comics. And Larry Hama, the great Larry Hama, writing this one. And David Watcher on the art. Niraj Menon on the colors. VCs Travis Lanham on the letters. And Billy Tan and Monica Moo on the cover. Now, in this case, Heart of the Dragon is, that's literally what's happening in this issue. Someone's actually seeking the dra- the hearts of dragons in each of the seven heavenly cities. Now, this issue is really filled with, I mean, undead ninjas and, and underrealms and plenty of action. And I'm going to, again, not really try to spoil a whole lot here. But normally the heroes try to save the world, but this time they're actually trying to save the heavens. And again, who's actually behind this? We don't really know. There's there's some familiar faces that you'll see in this book. One villain in particular that you will know and that is, that is kind of tasked to gather these dragon hearts and take from what I just said what you will. But other than that, I mean, there's just a whole lot going on. In, in this issue, there's certainly plenty to keep you distracted, that's for sure. You'll also see plenty of familiar faces, as I said, on the hero side. And what's what's interesting about this book is it's actually a quite lighthearted read, given the seriousness of what's actually going on in the world of this issue. The ultimate reason, though, why these events are happening is really not even kind of clear in this first issue. And, and, and really, I guess it shouldn't be. But we kind of get thrown into this whole, okay, so we're going to try and, you know, unite the heavens and connect them to the world that Iron Fist is trying to do, that Danny Rand's trying to do, and then all of a sudden all hell breaks loose, basically is what happens. So, I guess what I'm saying is, if you're a fan of Iron Fist, or Luke Cage for that matter, because you see Power Man in this as well, that's likely going to be enough for you to keep you entertained. Otherwise, despite the book's overall charm, it kind of lacks a real hook after that first issue. And I talk about that a lot, how I want the first issue to just grab me 
and make me want to grab that second issue immediately. I didn't really get that vibe here. I'm curious to see what's going to happen because of how the first issue ended. And and I w- I'm kind of invested, but this is also one of those where I could see, like, if the second issue came out and I missed it, I'd, I'd be like, oh, well, you know, what are you going to do? So, again, if you're a fan of these characters anyway, I think you'll get more out of this than I did. But and, and the arts, the arts pretty darn good. But again, it didn't blow me away. I was I like to be blown away when I read a first issue or at least or at least, you know, partially anyway, I, I like to be kind of blown away. And I, and I just wasn't with this one. Doesn't and it's and again, it's not because it's a bad story. It's just that it, it didn't hook me like I really wished that it would. So Iron Fist, Heart of the Dragon, number one. Yeah, I, I, I dug it, but not as much as I really wanted to. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Up next, going to dive into some nerd news. Not a ton of it this week, but we'll get into what there is. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Shay Fontana, writer for DC Superhero Girl, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Did somebody say Oracle? It's time for nerd news. And it's been a light news week, but probably the biggest story that I saw this week was the fact that Titans has cast their Barbara Gordon for season three coming up on HBO Max, and it is Savannah Welsh. You might say, okay, who is Savannah Welsh? Well, I'm going to tell you. If you watch the History Channel Series 6, you probably saw her in that. She was also in the movie Boyhood and Tree of Life and some other stuff. But one of the things about this character, about this actress, actually, is that she is an amputee. And this is all reported by, this was all, the casting first reported by Variety, by the way. After an accident she had in 2016, caused her to lose one of her legs. Now, this character, Barbara Gordon, is going to be the Barbara Gordon post-killing joke and still suffering from those injuries. Now, is Barbara Gordon going to be wheelchair-bound in this series? We don't really know that for a fact. We don't know what, what how they're going to present her on screen just yet. But having someone who is a, an amputee and someone who would know what it would be like for Barbara to deal with the challenge the challenges that she would have coming from her injuries, I think is a really, really important part of bringing authenticity to the character. Quite frankly, I, I mean, I think that that's a really smart thing that they did. Plus, I mean, she was probably just the best person for the job. She went out there for the audition. She nailed it because that's, you know, that's how you choose who you want to play these characters ultimately. And quite frankly, I think that this is this is a really and she's she got the look. If you see the picture, if you go to downnerdypodcast.com, the picture that's up there, she definitely has that Barbara Gordon look to her too. And I, I mean, I can't wait because Barbara is going to be police commissioner in this Titans season three production has just started, so we should be getting first looks any day now. I would think so. Keep checking back for that. But this isn't the first time that Titans has cast a character that. You cast someone that's more true to the character. You might remember Chella Man was cast as, as Jericho for season two of Titans. And Man was a deaf actor who was playing the mute Joseph Wilson on the show. So again, someone who, while it's not spot on, would understand the challenges that character would be going through. And I thought did a good job in the second season. So uh, Titans understands that it's important to bring that kind of an authenticity to their cast. And I think that they this was a very smart move 
on their part to do that and how she's going to do in the part. We, we can't know that for sure, obviously, at this point. We'll just have to wait and see. But I will say the Titans has had a good track record of getting these characters right. And I am I'm sure that this will also be the case with this casting as well. Here's something that will probably make you happy if you're a Muppets fan. That's right, The Muppet Show coming to Disney Plus on February the 19th. I tell you that because not only is it going to have the three seasons that you've seen, it's going to add the two more seasons that were never before seen. So now you get all five seasons of The Muppet Show on Disney Plus. And anytime this happens, ultimately somebody brings up the should the show just be rebooted and brought to Disney Plus. My answer to that is absolutely not. And I'll tell you why. Because first of all, we've already tried the Muppet reboot thing. It doesn't work. It really doesn't. It just it's hard to capture that magic again. And I understand that, you know, maybe you disagree and you know more Muppets is better than no Muppets at all. I understand that. But the Muppet show worked so well for the time that it was in and it could still be appreciated today the way it was presented back then. That if you try to do it now, I don't see that it works. I mean, I, maybe you try and do like a Space Ghost Coast to Coast type of vibe with it. I don't see that working. They already tried to kind of make the Muppets more adults in that reboot that they had on ABC. It didn't work. It just didn't. I wanted to love it, and I didn't. And everything they've tried to do to reboot it since just hasn't worked. Now... That's to say, should they stop making movies? No, I think that you could still make Muppet movies and make them well and make them relevant. You could even do a Muppet series. You could do the movie the, like they used to do, like Muppets Treasure Island. They used to do stuff like that. Take classic stories, put the Muppets in there. You could do that. If you want to do Muppet Star Wars, Muppet Avengers, knock yourself out. That could be funny, and it could be fun if you put the Muppet spin on it. Do it. I think that that's actually a smart idea. They do it with Legos. Why not do it? With Muppets, right? But leave the Muppet show alone because it was a classic in its time for a reason. And this is not something that needs to be rebooted. Let's come up with these fun, more, let's come up with some more fun ideas than that because there are plenty out there and plenty of ways that you could do something with the Muppets that doesn't involve rebooting something that we've already seen, quite frankly. Here's something that I don't think I'm really that surprised by. But I was kind of hoping it wouldn't happen. But it's not all bad news. Comicbook.com was one of the first to report that the Arrowverse kind of shifting premieres a little bit. So The Flash is going to be delayed. It's new season, not going to start now until March the 2nd, which is basically just a one-week move, so not terrible. No real reason given for the shift. It's not necessarily COVID-related or anything like that or anything delays like that. I mean, take your time. I, I always say this. Take the time to get it right. If you need an extra week, to you know, get a little bit more of a buffer in filming, so we don't have a, a huge gap. Should there be a shutdown, I mean, do that. Just admit, this is a smart play. If you feel like you need to move it a week, move it a week. But what does benefit from this is that Superman and Lois is now going to get that ninety-minute premiere coming up, and it's going to be an extended premiere on the original premiere date of February twenty-third. And not only that. It's going to get a 30-minute special, which is going to be, you know, cast interviews. They're going to look ahead at upcoming episodes and also just basically celebrate Superman's return to being in a regular series for the first time since Smallville. I mean, we obviously, we've seen the character appear in other series, but this is not a series regular. So that's what we're getting here. The first Superman 
in Lois Lane series since, well, more so for Superman since Smallville. And then you've got the Lois and Clark story with, with Dean Cain and Terry Hatcher would have been the last with Superman and Lois as adults anyway. So I think that this is a really, really cool thing that they do and that the special is actually going to be called Superman and Lois Legacy of Hope. And I mean, having Superman and Lois be able to play off of The Flash would have obviously been a smart thing. Because, you know, The Flash is not only the longest tenured series in the Arrowverse now, but it's it's also it's the highest rated and has been for a while. So having that as like your lead in, not necessarily a terrible thing. They do that with, with premieres all the time where you give the show a good lead in in front of a show you know works. And then, you know, that brings you big ratings for your first episode of your new show. I'm not sure that's going to be a problem for this particular show because you've got Superman and Lois. And you've got the Superman and Lois casting with Tyler Hoken and Bitsy Tullock, the, the people already love them. So you don't necessarily need to introduce people to them. Now we're going to be introduced to the Super Sons and some other cast members. But as far as the main characters go, we know who they are. We know what they're about. We know how well they work together. There's really no surprise there. And the Superman name carries a lot. So does Lois Lane, quite frankly. People are going to want to watch this show anyway. I just do think that having that Flash lead in definitely would have helped a little bit. So I remember last week when I said that Morbius being delayed by Sony was maybe the start of a ripple effect of more movies being delayed again. Well, guess what? It is happening again. Let's start with Sony again, shall we? Because they are now delaying Ghostbusters Afterlife to November 11th of this year. You're also moving the Uncharted movie to February 11th of 2022. So let's push that one up. They're also moving... The Camila Cabello Cinderella movie, if you're interested in that. And then and the uh, Uncharted story uh, reported by Deadline, by the way. And then the big one from MGM is No Time to Die, the James Bond movie. Bond 25 moving to October the 8th of this year. And, here, and Black Widow is likely to be next. I mean, by the time you hear this, Black Widow could have already been delayed but you know we can't update in real time here so you, we've got to play the cards that were dealt now it's not just these delays either you have to think about that there's ripple effects every time that one of these movies gets delayed for future movies because they're not just going to stockpile movies one right after the other into one month or the end of one year it's just that's just not how it's done I mean, I know the fall TV season kind of got shifted to January, and that's fine. But you're not going to see a whole bunch. You're not going to see this influx of summer blockbuster movies in the fall of this year. I just don't think that's going to happen. It's certainly, I mean, if you're looking at things with Ghostbusters and, and Bond 25, No Time to Die, and stuff like that, a lot of movies are moving into into the fall and maybe early winter of this year, but I just, I don't know. I don't see that being a thing. As a matter of fact, who knows if those are even going to be the dates. I, let's just be honest with ourselves, right? This thing is completely unpredictable. And, you know, I'm not going to try and get all, you know, newsy on you or anything. But, I, I mean, we don't know how the vaccine's going to gonna hold up. We don't know how long it's going to take for for enough people to get it, for us to start, you know, being able to go out into the world again. We don't even know what theater capacities are going to look like this fall. Do you think they're going to release this James Bond movie if you can't have a 100% capacity movie theater? Doubtful. 
quite honestly, doubtful. I don't think that's something that they're going to do because, I mean, you're cutting your revenue in half. And I just don't see how that's going to happen. Not just in the United States, by the way, because there's resurgences of, of, of COVID all over the world right now. Who knows what things are going to look like globally, never mind domestically. And that matters for the bottom line of these movies as well. It's easy to just focus on the domestic numbers. We're talking about foreign as well. So, I mean, there's the only sure thing here is to release on digital. I know that's not something that everybody wants to hear, but I just don't know how many times you can push so many movies back. I mean, it's not like we're talking about New Mutants here where it gets delayed for like five years before it finally comes out. And by then, clearly, everybody had lost interest. We're talking about much larger releases here. We're talking about bigger movies. So you you feel like that probably wouldn't happen, right? But I'm telling you right now, push a movie enough times and see how much people are interested in it. Because there's so much entertainment out there now. There is, I mean, Netflix is releasing a movie a movie a week every every week this year, is or at least that's what they say. Now, are all of them going to be great? Probably not. But at the same time, they're doing that, and I'm not saying that anything that Netflix puts out is better than any of these movies that were just delayed. I'm just saying that people enjoy stuff they can actually watch. Right. And once you start feeling like you're never going to see something, that interest wanes just a little bit each time. And I know that everybody's upset with Warner Brothers about what they did with HBO Max. But at the same time, there are a lot of users. There are a lot of fans who are pretty damn happy about how that whole thing went down. And people are going to remember that. I'm telling you right now, you don't you think I'm crazy. People are going to remember you know what? Warner Brothers gave us these movies. And again, nothing's for free, right? This is going to come at a cost at some point for the end user, right? But people are going to remember that Warner Brothers did this. I'm telling you right now. So while some directors and a lot of other people might be upset, people are going to remember that Warner Brothers decided to do this and not just continuously keep delaying their movies. And what this also is a sign of, and to kind of flip the script here and talk about something different, this to me is a clear-cut indicator that you should not be making plans for any summer conventions as far as comic book conventions go. I wouldn't make any plans for San Diego Comic-Con this year. I just don't see it. If this is happening with major movie releases, what are you going to bring to Comic-Con? I mean, yeah, you, you, could see, you could bring these movies to Comic-Con and you could pump up these movies for the fall, I guess. Yeah, you you, you could do that, right? Because it's not like they don't pump future releases during Comic-Con anyway. But I just, I don't, I don't feel it. If you don't think it's going to be safe to go to a movie theater in the summer, how could you possibly justify things being safe to go to Comic-Con? And how could you possibly justify plugging your movies at a convention when you won't let people go into a movie theater, but you'll pack people into a crowded convention hall to talk about your movies? I doubt it. I really, really doubt it. So I wouldn't be making any summer convention plans. Matter of fact, I'm surprised we haven't already heard about WonderCon being canceled canceled or delayed. That's supposed to be in March. Here we are sitting almost February now, and there's no end in sight to how bad things are with COVID in California right now. No end in sight at all. I can't imagine by March they're going to say, yep, we're good. Let's go ahead bring bring everybody over to Anaheim. Let's do that. No, that's not going to happen. No. That is not at all 
going to happen. So it looks like it's going to be one of those situations where we're going to have to wait quite a bit for a lot of things we love to return. And as far as normal goes, I mean, who knows at this point, right? That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Javicia Leslie for joining me this week and all everybody at the CW for giving me a chance to speak with her. Talk about Batwoman Season 2, which Episode 2 drops this Sunday. You can watch each and every Sunday on the CW and again the next day on the CW app. Make sure you're following along with what we've got going on as well at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter, on Instagram as well. And then you also have us at Down and Nerdy on Twitter. Facebook, make sure you're subscribing to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcast as well. If you need to know where the link is for your favorite podcast service, you can find it now at downandnerdypodcast.com. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.